Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Elias. Hey, does anyone need a Bible this morning? We have some Bibles up here. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. Chapter 3, I mean. Chapter 3, not going backwards. Anyone need a Bible this morning? You showed up with that one? Love for you to follow along with us. All right, Exodus chapter 3. And I'm telling you, I'm excited about this. This is, this is one of those messages. I mean, they're all this way, but they're, there's some that I, I need this, right? And I, I want you to know, don't misunderstand me there. I need it all. There, there's not a single message that I preach that isn't first for me or also for me. I'm, I need all of this. But this one, specifically this morning, I just felt, Lord... Please do this in my heart. Please, please show me and teach me and write this upon my heart and let me walk in it. There's, there's just something very, very personal to me about the text that we're about to read. And so I'm, I'm just excited about that. And I, I think it's also for you. That's why we're taking the time to touch on it. So why don't you pray with me as we approach the text and then we'll get after it. Father, we come, we come to you in Jesus' name and God... We're just grateful. We're grateful for who you are. We're, we're grateful for, for what we know about you, what we have to trust because we don't quite yet know and fully understand you because you're God and you're higher than us and you're, you're smarter than us and you're bigger than and we can understand in our finite capacities. And God, I love that about you. And yet we, we have a beautiful section of scripture where you do reveal some beautiful components about your character to Moses and in turn to us. And God, I just want us all to just grab a hold of you, Jesus. I want us to grab a hold of you, great I am. I want us to grab a hold of you in in a physical and a spiritual sense and God, just never let go. And so I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just anoint my lips to bring this message to your people for your glory, for your namesake. So Jesus, you would be high and lifted up and we would be able to see you through your word this morning. So we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure we've all heard this saying, and I hope it doesn't put a song in anybody's head, but the saying is, one step forward, two steps back, right? We've probably heard all that. We've used that saying. We've said that before. It's this idea that I took a step that I thought was going to make some progress in my life, but I found out it was, you know, the wrong time to take the step, or it was actually a step in the wrong direction, and that step actually required me taking two steps backwards, backing this thing up, and getting another run at it, right? One step forward, two steps back. And I have an illustration from my own life that very much depicts what we're talking about here. I tried to do a home improvement project on my own right? Maybe you've been there before, but we had an unfinished room in our house in Twin Falls, Idaho. And I thought, I thought, well, I could either hire someone who knows how to do it, or I could do it myself because I thought it can't be that hard, right? It's, it's just sheetrock. I got to put some sheetrock up. Like that's pretty self-explanatory. Put it on the wall, right? I can do it. So I do. And I, I start hanging sheetrock and I get the whole room done and I take a step back and I'm like, that looks fantastic. I mean, perfect even. Until my buddy, who was the pastor at the church I was going to at the time, and actually hung sheetrock for a time in his own life, he comes, doesn't even have to say anything, just starts shaking his head. And I'm like, well, what is that? What do you mean? I mean, this is, this is really good stuff. And he goes, he goes, you compromised the integrity on every piece of sheetrock you hung because I had used just the regular cordless drill. I mean, that's sufficient, right? He says, there's a sheetrock drill, which didn't know there was such a thing, but I had punctured the paper on every single piece of sheetrock that I hung, which, you know, is just kind of the powdery middle, which compromised the integrity. This is going to fall on someone. Hey, you want to stay in my guest room? The sheetrock might fall on you, but, you know, trust the Lord, right? So what happened was me trying to do this project, I took one step forward, hung all the sheetrock myself, but I did it wrong, which required two steps backward, taking off all that sheetrock and rehanging it, right? But I learned my lesson. Interestingly enough, my lesson was don't try to hang sheetrock again. I've never done it again. I am interested if anyone is thinking, well, I have an unfinished room in my house. I, I will get the right drill and help you. I will. But you're, you're thinking, why are, why are you telling me this? What does this have to do with anything? Well, this one step forward, two step back, is, it's been a lot like Moses' life through the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. It's been a lot like what we've seen him do. We remember in chapter 1, chapter 2, that he spent 40 years in Egypt. 40 years being taught up in the ways of the Egyptian, Egyptians, 40 years being mighty in word and deed. And then God starts moving in his heart. God puts it on his heart. Go visit your brethren. Go see what your people are going through. And God starts to give him a vision 
for what God wants to use him to do. But what does Moses do, right? He takes one step that he thinks in the right direction. He goes out there, not just to see, but to get involved, ends up killing an Egyptian, and things just kind of go downhill from there. He ends up fleeing, and his one step of progress, his one step in the wrong direction, leads to two steps backwards. By the time we get to the text in chapter 3, he's been in the desert of Midian for 40 years. And God's been using all that time to teach him and to shape him and to grow him and to get Egypt out of him and to get that mentality of self-sufficiency and doing things the way he thinks is right in his mind, purging all of that stuff out of Moses. And he has, and we're about to see what God is going to do now in chapter 3. So I want us to think of chapter 3 we're going to look at this morning. We're going to kind of look at it in two parts. Part number one is we're going we're to talk about the call and the commission of Moses. God is going to reveal himself to Moses. He's going to call Moses to this task. And it's, it's going to have three parts. And we're going to talk about that. So that's part one. You track it with me? Part one has three parts. Part two just has one part. Right? It's kind of tricky. I'm, you get it. The second part, though, we're going to see the source of strength that God is going to show Moses so he will be successful and his ministry will last longer than the two days it previously did. So we're going to talk about that kind of as we close, but that's where we're going. So with all that in mind, let's pick up Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, that's Reuel we learned last week, his father-in-law, Jethro his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why does the bush not burn? So when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. Stopping here for a minute, let's catch the scene at what we just read. Moses is out here in the desert, notice, watching his father-in-law's sheep. And I want you to understand that this day starts exactly like the day before it, and the day before it, and the day before it, and the day before it. The simple life of Moses, a shepherd of the sheep, right? And notice, again, he's shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. That's where this situation picks up. I want you to see that the dreams and ambitions of grandeur in Egypt, they died 40 years ago. The hopes and ambitions of being used by God, used for God's glory, used to deliver his people out of Egypt, they might not have died, but they are so far on the back burner of Moses' life, so far in the back of his mind, that he thinks they are just a distant, slim reality possibility that they're ever going to come to pass. He's just doing his thing, shepherding sheep. But what we're going to see is this day is not like the other days before it. God's timing has arrived and God is about to do something awesome. But in verse 1, he goes to the backside of the desert, a place that he's probably frequented before, and he ends up being in a place that is called Horeb, or the mountain called Horeb. Now in the Hebrew, this term Horeb, it literally means desert. Right, so he's in the desert, the mountainous area, the desert region, a dry and desolate place where there's some mountains called Horeb. Now, we see here in the text, Moses giving us a little foreshadowing, this same mountain of Horeb is also going to be called the mountain of God. Because God is going to do something powerful, something in a revelation type of way to Moses. And it's going to become the mountain of God. Where God meets with Moses, where God meets with his people, where God is going to do some great and awesome things we're going to see in the book of Exodus. But I just want you to see, this is where God is going to reveal himself to Moses. But catch this, he's not only going to reveal himself to Moses, this is going to be the same place that God is going to have Moses bring the nation of Israel back and he's going to reveal himself to them as well. Or maybe just talking more about this foreshadowing, just think about this very literally. Moses is leading somebody else's sheep to Horeb when God initially reveals himself to him. 
And then he's going to be doing that exact same thing, leading somebody else's sheep, God's sheep, the nation of Israel, when he comes back to this place and God reveals himself to the nation of Israel. It's beautiful, and it's beautiful foreshadowing. But I also want you to think about this from the standpoint of spiritual leadership. We're going to see Moses, and we see Moses in a lot of regards. He gets to go first. Moses gets to meet with God at the mountain of God first. But I want you to see spiritual leaders of of households, of families, of ministries, his job isn't to stay first, right? His job isn't to remain first. The role of a spiritual leader is to get the people to where you are, get the people where you met with with God, bring the people back to the mountain of God so they can taste and see for themselves and have a personal relationship with God themselves. So Moses gets to go first, but the whole plan is not that he becomes the only one or stays first, but that he brings everybody else to the same place, to the mountain of God, which he's going to. We'll see that as we study through the book of Exodus. But this is amazing here as we start to connect the dots. The 40 years that Moses is in the desert region of Midian, they're not a waste. It's not an accident. God hasn't been doing this to punish Moses. He's raising him up. It just so happens the very place where Moses is is going to be the place where the mountain of God is. Right? Connect the dots. Right? God can and does meet us right where he's called us. Right where we're at. He's going to meet us and he's going to say, from this place, I'm going to launch you to another place. Or from this place, I'm going to show you who I am and then you can go and do what I've called you to do. Very practical, very purposeful that what we have seeing here. So in his perfect timing, in his perfect wisdom, God is about to commission Moses. He's led him to this mountain. Now check this out. Moses, Moses is doing what a shepherd does, right? He's watching the sheep graze. Maybe he's looking for a cool rock to put in his cloak to show his kids. You know, like we do. He's, he's milling around. He's kind of watching the sheep. But verse 2 says, he looks and he sees there's a bush on fire. Now, I want you to picture this. He kind of looks over. I get the idea that he looks over and he's like, oh, a bush on fire. No big deal, right? I've seen that before. It's a dry and desolate place. It's hot. There's a fire. It's not like a, it's going to be a forest fire. Google, Google Mount Sinai. Google the area of Horeb. There's no danger that there's going to be a raging forest fire. There's like a single bush on fire. So Moses looks at that and he's like, no big deal. But then he looks again and he's like, that bush is still there. And that fire is still raging. What catches his eye is not that the bush is on fire, it's that the bush is not being consumed. What catches his eye is that those flames have not started to dwindle at all. We are all familiar with standing around a fire and grabbing some kindling or grabbing some stick or some paper and throwing it in the fire and we watch the flames kind of rage for a minute. We're like, yeah! But then it dies down. We've got to grab something else and throw it in the fire. These flames don't ever die down. Which gives us the idea that Moses looks and probably is like, no, nah, bush on fire. Wow, that bush is on fire. And that bush is on fire. And he watches it for a minute and says, there's something going on that is different than any other fire I've ever seen. This bush is not being consumed. And that's going to draw Moses in. It's intriguing to him. It's out of the ordinary. It's not natural. It's supernatural. So then check out what Moses does in verse 3. It says, Then Moses said... I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush doesn't burn down. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, who's Moses talking to here? He's out with a bunch of sheep. Is he like, hey, sheep, let's go check this out, right? There's a bush over here that's not burning. Who's he talking to? Now, I mean, Jesus does say that the sheep will know their shepherd's voice, so maybe there's some talking going on between Moses and the sheep, right? That's biblical, maybe, Right? Maybe he's been out here with the sheep too long. I don't know. But he's going to speak to them. Let's go. He speaks this thing and says, let's go check this out. But what we're really seeing is God is beginning to appear to Moses. God is in this situation. In fact, verse 2, it says, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire in the midst of the bush. So that's really what's going on here. But church, I want you to see and look at the verbiage clearly here. It says, it says, the angel of the Lord. This isn't an angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. And many of us, when we think about angels, when we read our Bibles and we see that angels are, are created beings and they're, they're there, there's a spiritual realm. Angels exist. And so we, we see that though oftentimes an angel is a messenger of God bringing a message to, to, to minister to those who will inherit salvation. But I want you to know this isn't just an angel. This is the angel of the Lord. 
this isn't just an angel that has the authority to speak for the Lord. This is an angel that also has the authority to say, I am the Lord, right? So there's something else going on here. There's only one other being that can both speak with the authority for the Lord and also declare himself to be the Lord, and that's Jesus himself. So what we're seeing in this angel, the angel of the Lord here, this is called a Christophany. This is a picture of Jesus, a pre-incarnate representation, appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. This is Jesus, and I've got some verses to show you to, to just show you where my mind goes and say, this is Jesus. How, how can I be sure? Because I have verses like this one. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later in chapter 1, verse 14, says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now I bring this up to say two things. Number one, we see here that Jesus is eternal. Jesus existed before He came and clothed Himself in humanity. Before the incarnation, the clothing of Himself in the flesh, He existed in a pre-incarnate state. He's eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then I also want you to see that he's the word. He's the logos. When God wants to speak a word, a logos, he speaks and Jesus makes it manifest. Jesus is the word. We beheld him, grace and truth through Jesus, the word. So when, when the word appears, here's Jesus. But because we can see this, look at this. Hebrews chapter one, verse three, again, speaking of Jesus, who is Jesus? He is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, the express image of God. That's who Jesus is. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. What these two verses show us, and I put them up here, they're in part. I want you to know that. In your study, guys, the whole verse is there for you to see. I'm not trying to hide anything from you, but, but they're, they're short and sweet up here. Look at your study guides for the mores and, and read the context of what's going on there. But anytime God wants to reveal himself to his creation, to humanity, who does he use? He uses Jesus, the express image of his being, the, the visible representation of the invisible God, Jesus. So again, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, We see in the book of Exodus that out of the midst of the fire, Jesus is speaking. Out of the midst of the flame. And there's one more reference verse that I want you to see. Remember Daniel's three friends. Their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Or maybe you know them better as Rakshak and Benny from that favorite VeggieTales. Remember when they get tossed into a fiery furnace because they will not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image that he made. They say, that image is nice and brilliant but not worthy of our worship. Only God alone is worthy of our worship. So we're not going to bow down. Remember, they get thrown into the fiery furnace. But remember what Nebuchadnezzar sees? Nebuchadnezzar says, Look, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Out of the fire, we have another pre-incarnate picture, representation, appearance of Jesus right here in the, in the book of Daniel. And what I love about this too is here again we have a fire that should be consuming something, should be consuming some people, and it's not because God is able to do a supernatural work. Exactly like what we're seeing here in Exodus chapter 3. But as we start to kind of break this down and, and talk about this, this fire what we're going to see here, God revealing himself through the fire, the fire through the book of Exodus, the fire through the Old Testament, the fire even into the New Testament is an appearance, a representation of God's presence amongst his people. God has a habit. He set this up that where there is a fire, a holy fire, it is showing the very presence of God in that situation. We'll see later God leading his people out of Egypt as a pillar of fire. We're going to see later, God, God give Moses the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, the place where God will tabernacle with his people, where he will receive worship from his people. And there's going to be a place called the Holy of Holies, and God, through a fire, is going to bring illumination to that place. We're going to see into the New Testament, John the Baptist, a forerunner for Jesus. He's, he's going to clearly say, I am not the Christ. But there's one coming after me. He's greater than I am. And what's he going to do, church? He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with 
fire, right? And then what happens on the day of Pentecost? Tongues of fire come down as the Holy Spirit is sent. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to empower the church, to birth the church, right? Fire, fire, fire. The Lord is showing us this representation all throughout the Bible. And I want you to check this out. It's it's God being able to be, listen closely, God is an all-consuming fire. He is. We have multiple Bible verses that tell us our God is an all-consuming fire. But our God is also simultaneously able to burn brightly and powerfully and not consume the one upon whom he is burning. He's both an all-consuming fire and a fire that needs no supply in order to burn, at least no natural supply. That's what we're seeing here in Exodus chapter 3. So all this is going on. Now Moses is probably completely awestruck and amazed. He wants to check this out. He invites his sheep, come, let's check this out. He's like, I'm not worried about their wool catching fire because their wool is naturally fire resistant. I I bet you didn't know that. I had to Google that. It's true. So maybe he's like huddling up close to some sheep. No, he's probably not. Get that picture out of your mind. I don't know what he's doing there. But he shows up here. Verse 4 says that the Lord sees Moses turn aside and come over to look. Moses is heading over to the burning bush. God is drawing Moses to God. Don't you love that? God draws us to himself. That's what he's doing to Moses. He's drawing him to himself. But as Moses starts to get closer, God calls to him by name, saying, Moses, Moses. And I love that part. I, I couldn't separate one part that I love more, but I do love this part. He, he knows Moses' name. He doesn't say, hey, you weird guy who talks to sheep, come over here. He says, Moses, Moses. He knows his name. He calls him by name. He knows your name. He calls us by name. It is a personal thing to call someone by a name. It says, I want to know you deeper. I want you to know me. There's a relationship that is forming here as God says, I know you. Think about the category, that beautiful category that Moses finds himself in, places in the Bible where God calls a person twice by their first name. Abraham, Abraham. Jacob, Jacob. Samuel, Samuel. Martha, Martha. Simon, Simon. Simon will become Peter. Saul, Saul, who will be renamed Paul. He's calling them twice by their first name, saying, I want to invite you into a deeper relationship with me. And I want you to know your name fits there too. That is exactly what God wants to do, what he's made available through his son Jesus. He's inviting you deeper, and he's calling you by name. That's what he does. So Moses, he's going to do like Abraham does and like Samuel does and like we want to do and say, here I am, Lord. Here I am. I'm here and I'm listening. What do you want to tell me? And I want you to catch the very first thing God wants Moses to know. Maybe you could say the first thing is he wants Moses to know I know your name. But the second thing he wants Moses to know is here in verse 5. He says, do not draw near this place or do not come any closer. Why? Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. You could say the second thing after knowing your name, the second thing God wants us to know about him is he is holy. He is holy. He is set apart. To be holy means to be set apart, set distinctly apart. And when we talk about the holiness of God, we're saying that God belongs in a category of one. He is completely incomparable to any other thing, any other being. He stands alone all by himself. He has no equal. He's over all. He's above all. He's greater than all. He's higher than all. God alone is holy and perfect and righteous and just and insert awesome adjective and insert awesome adjective, etc., etc., etc. God is holy. And he tells Moses, stop where you are. Do not come any closer. Take your sandals off your feet for where you stand is holy ground. Where God is, is holy ground. And I've heard some crazy whoppers as to why did he ask Moses to take off his sandals, right? Was he afraid Moses was going to run away and was like, oh, you're, you're not going to run very far if you take your sandals off. Listen, no, that is not what God was worried about. He's going to tell Joshua later in the book of Joshua, take off your sandals for the place where you stand is holy ground. And so we want to know why. Why did he tell him to take his sandals off? Well, I think it's as simple as this. What are shoes? What are sandals really? They're just tiny little platforms that go underneath our feet to lift us just a little higher than we otherwise naturally are. And when we come before the Lord, 
We don't want to stand on any artificial platform trying to lift ourselves up in his presence. When we're before the holy, awesome God of all creation, we want to get as low as we can because like we talked about last week, the way up is down. God receives the humble and broken and trite, contrite heart. But the one who's high and lifted up and puffed up, they need to first be humbled before God can lift them up. So it's a sign of humility. It's a sign of saying, God, you are awesome. You want my shoes off? I'll take them off, right? It's kind of opposite the way we do. When we go over to somebody's house, they say, hey, if you want to respect me, please keep your smelly feet in your shoes. But for the Lord, he says, no, I want you to take those off. I want you to get low. I want you to get real. I want you to be just who you are before me. And so that's what Moses does. He gets real. And I just love that about our God as well. Please know this, Christians. God doesn't want you to come with your high heels or your high platform shoes or your big old work boots before him thinking that you need to stand tall before him. God wants you to get real with him. God wants you to peel off the layers with him. You do not have to fake it until you make it with a God who knows your thoughts before you even think them. Just be real. Be honest. He knows and he wants to see you. He already sees you as you are, but he wants to relate to you in that capacity. So remove some of that stuff. Clear the way so God can minister directly to your heart. That's what Moses is going to do here. So he stands before the Lord. He's low now. He's in this reverent place. And God says, don't come any closer. The other part I want to touch on is is we say, who is God saying that for? Is he saying that for himself or is he saying that for Moses' sake? When he says, don't come any closer, I want you to know it's for Moses' own safety. He says, I have a big plan for you and you coming so close that you get burned up, that's not going to be the plan. You need to stay a right, reverent fear and distance away from me. He says it for his own safety talking about this fire analogy that God himself sets up. We can all relate to this. There's something amazing about a fire. When you're burning a fire, you're at a campfire, you're looking at it, it is, it's mesmerizing and it's captivating and fascinating all at the same time. We're just looking at it, it's incredible. But what do we have to learn early on in our lives? What do we have to teach our kids, right? Don't play with fire. Take it seriously. It's fire. And that's the same thing with God. Don't play with God. Take him seriously. Take his word seriously. We can all fall into that sometimes where we just don't. And when we find there, there's no condemnation. We say, Father, forgive me. I don't want to play with you. I want to take you at your word. I want to take you at your truth. And I I need to repent sometimes. He does that stuff for our own safety because he loves us. So he's telling Moses, don't play around. Keep a safe distance. But as we think about this distance here between Moses and the Lord, I just want you to know, we we say, well, why is there distance? Why can't we just approach God? Why can't we just come however we want, wearing whatever we want? And listen, I'm not talking about church. You come to church however you want. You come, you come, and you see the Lord. I'm talking about coming into the presence of the only one who is holy. Talking about approaching the Lord God of all creation. Why can't we just do it any way that we want? Why is Jesus the only way, the only truth, and the life? Why, why does it seem like Christians are so narrow-minded and, and just strict about that? It's because there's something called sin, right? I want you to know, at the very beginning of all creation, there wasn't a distance. When God created Adam and Eve, human beings, he created them for fellowship with him. He created them to walk and talk with God, and they did early on in the book of Genesis. But then they sinned, they disobeyed God, and then there became separation, right? A holy and perfect God, and now sinful man, and there's a separation. And that separation exists at Moses' time. He's going to receive the law, he's going to receive animal sacrifice, which is going to be a temporary covering to bridge that distance, but only temporarily. But it all leads to Jesus. It all leads to the place where we now, in Christ, can approach the Lord through Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is our holiness, Jesus, 2 Corinthians says, he who knew no sin, Jesus, who lived the perfect life, never sinned, never disobeyed God, he lived the perfect life, the life we can't live. And then he laid his life down on a cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us, dying uh, on a cross. He died the death we deserved. Why? Why? To ultimately pay the sin price we owed. 
He paid it. He's our substitutionary sacrifice. He's the reason why he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Because nobody else has lived a perfect life. Nobody else has died the death that we all deserve. Nobody else has risen from the grave, right? Only Jesus. And he is God's propitiation, God's way, the sacrifice to satisfy. So we, think about this Christian, we today in Christ can get closer to God than Moses could have in this day. Isn't that crazy? If that doesn't kind of spin your mind and say, wow, I don't know what will because that's incredible. Moses, who God uses in in incredible ways, he didn't have the access to holy God like we do because we are hidden in Christ. Because we can enter in by the blood of the lamb who bled for me, washed me of all my sin and inequity. That's, That's what we're talking about here. So there's no distance for us here today, but there still was a distance in this day for Moses. So as Moses is sitting here and he's thinking, I'm here, he's standing here barefooted, he's amazed, and he's hearing out of this fire this voice that is talking to him. So I just imagine he's standing here saying, what is all this about? You have my attention. What do you want to tell me? Verse 6 says, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." So Moses here, he's staring at this burning bush at first. And again, come on, I think he's looking intently at this burning bush. He he's knows his name. He doesn't know what's going on here, but he's staring intently. And maybe he's wondering, all right, you know my name, but who exactly are you? Right? You ever answer the phone, you don't recognize the voice, and you're like, hey, can I, can I ask who I'm talking to here? Who, who am I speaking with? Right? Moses is like, hey, what's going on here? Kind of weird, but I'm talking to sheep, so talking to a bush isn't that strange in my life. So, but but what if, what's going on here? And God, he's kind of like, oh, pardon me. Let me introduce myself. I am the God of your father. He's saying, I am the God of Amram. I'm the God of your father. Remember Moses' parents who were faithful to trust the Lord and hide Moses for the first three months of his life because they didn't fear Pharaoh. It's because they knew the Lord. They trusted and feared the Lord. But then he says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I want you to circle and highlight the part where he says, I am the God of Amram, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am, not I was. This is long after their physical death, yet he does not say, I was the God of them. I am the God of them. And Jesus is going to use this same section of Scripture to talk about how he is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Which means that even after this physical life ends, for those who know Jesus, it is an eternal relationship. He doesn't have to talk about them in the past tense because they're in the present tense with him. To be absent from the body for the Christian is to be present with the Lord. I am the God of Amram, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of your fathers. And I want you to see what Moses does when he hears this. He tries to crawl under a rock. He hides his face knowing I can't look upon God. I love the reverent heart and approach that Moses shows us. Oh, you're, you're the Lord? I can't just keep staring at you like this. He tries to hide himself. But I love that part. The Proverbs, the, the book full of wisdom, it says the fear of the Lord, it's both the beginning of wisdom and it's the beginning of knowledge. And I love it, right? I want knowledge. I want to live my life with knowledge. It says we'll have a right reverent fear of the Lord. And I love wisdom. I pray for wisdom every day. God, give me wisdom. And to have a right, reverent fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So Moses is showing us, he has a right, reverent fear of the Lord. He's just realized who is manifesting his very presence through this burning bush. It's the Lord God himself. And so now he has Moses' 100% undivided attention. And now he's going to give Moses his commission. 
I want you to see that God is a sending God, even back here in Exodus chapter 3, as we are sent onto the mission field every single time we gather here and we scatter back out of the mission field because God is a sending God. And here we see a commission. He's sending Moses out. And this commission has got three parts. We're going to see God's heart, his motives. We're going to see God's purpose, what he wants to accomplish. And we're going to see God's plan, how he wants to do it. So part one, God reveals his motive, his, his heart. He says in these verses, this is the reason why I have come down, why I have lefted my he- my left my heavenly throne. What's it motivated by? We're going to see here it is motivated by an indescribable, immeasurable love. God is doing all this because he loves his people. Jesus, you're seeing the similarities of all this, right? Jesus leaves his heavenly throne. He condescends and comes in the likeness of men. Why? Out of love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. It's love. It's always been God's greatest motivation, love. How is love manifested here? How is it shown to us here? Verse 7 says this. This is God speaking. Think, this is God. God says, I have seen. I have heard. I know their sorrows. There is probably someone in here right now and you've been thinking, God doesn't see. God doesn't hear. God doesn't know what I'm going through. And I want you to forever remember Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. Yes, he does. He sees, he knows, and he hears what you're going through. And just like we're about to see in the book of Exodus, where he is going to send his deliverer, he's raising him up, there will be a day Jesus is going to come again. And he will rescue his bride, and we will be with him forever. And there will be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more oppression and no more affliction. It will be a great and glorious day for all of eternity. But as we wait here in this Egypt of sorts, waiting for our deliverer to come in the very physical sense to rescue us, I want you to understand he still sees, he still hears, he still knows what you're going through. As we cry out to him, your prayers are not bouncing off the ceiling. They're like incense before the very throne of God. He hears them and he knows them and in his perfect timing, he will respond to them. Again, case proof right here in the text. So don't think for a second that God is not paying attention to what is going on with you. God is showing Moses. He loves his people and there is a a moment that is taking place here in this commission that he says, because I love my people and see what they're going through, I know their sorrows. This is my motivation for what I want to do now. So part two of the commission, here's God's purpose. Here's what he wants to to do. Here's his his, his demonstration of great love. Verse eight says that he's going to come down and deliver them out of Egypt. He's going to rescue them from that land and he's going to take them into a new land and he describes the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land he promised Abraham, the land he promised to Jacob that he would bring Jacob back to after Jacob went down into Egypt for a time. The same land, he's promised him. And we're going to see this Exodus account just again so similar to what we've been called and what our Christian life is like. The nation of Israel in bondage in Egypt in the book of Exodus, notice they're going to be saved from something for something. Right? They're going to be saved out. This mighty outstretched hand, this great deliverance of God, he's going to save them from the bondage. What for? To be his own special people and to be witnesses to the rest of the world, all the other nations, that the Lord God of Israel is the one true God. He is able to stretch out his hand and save. That's what he's going to do. And we think about our lives in Christ. Notice we've been saved from something. We've been saved from the bondage of sin. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We've been saved from something for something. What have we we been saved to do? To be his brethren, his own special people and to be a witness to testify to this world what Jesus is able to do in the life of whosoever would put their faith in him, right? We're witnesses to testify. That's what we're seeing here. Great similarities, great parallels. But those are the first two commissions that that he's giving Moses. I love my people. I'm motivated to save them. And number two, I'm going to take them out of this land and bring them into another land. Now at this point, I imagine Moses is just sitting here, you know, kind of hiding, still being like, yes, Lord, that all sounds great. Do that. I want you to do that, God. Yes, yes and amen. He's kind of wondering, but what does this have to do with me? Right? I mean, I'm just watching some sheep. I'm just a nobody here in Midian. And the last part of the commission here is in verse 10. It says, come now, therefore, and I will send you. 
Moses, this has everything to do with you because you're the guy I'm going to send to use to do it. You're the guy that's going down there to Egypt to lead my people out with my mighty outstretched hand. I'm going to use you, Moses. And I don't know what you're thinking, but Moses, Moses has got a whole bunch of thoughts. And I'm apologizing now that we're not going to cover the response from Moses until next week. It's just, it needs its own Sunday. How Moses is going to respond to this commission of God, it needs a, it needs a Sunday all to itself. And so we're going to do that next week. Please, though, read ahead. Because the way Moses responds, and the way God responds to Moses' response, and then the way Moses responds again, it's incredible. And the things that he reveals to himself, to Moses about himself, it's incredible. Again, read ahead. But I do want to stop here, and I want us to just try to picture what it would have been like to stand in Moses' bare feet right here. God has just clearly, absolutely just made it, you know, crystal clear, Moses, you're the guy that I'm going to use to go back to Egypt. Your, your life, you, we all say, God, show me your will, show me your plan. And he says, right, go to Egypt and deliver my people. And Moses is like, what? You, you, you want me to do what? Do you remember, I was already there 40 years ago, Lord. Do you remember, I already tried to step out in service to you and deliver your people. You remember how that just, that was, you know, an organized train wreck? Like, that was, that was bad. That did not go well. Lord's like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't forget that. I know exactly what I'm doing here. But I want you to listen to this. Please just try to hear this as if you're just, Moses is saying it. Moses could say, 40 years ago, I stepped out in ministry. 40 years ago, I tried to serve the Lord. And after two days, I burn out and I've never tried it again. I want you to think about that. How many of you fit in some regard... X amount of years ago, I stepped out to serve the Lord. I stepped out and shared the gospel with someone. I stepped out and, and went out on a limb and it didn't go well. And X amount of years have gone by and I've never done it again. And the Lord comes and presses upon your heart and says, that's, that's what I've called you to do. I've sent you to this place. He's like, I don't want to do that. Moses could say that. I, I tried. I tried to do this and it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be and it was a lot less glamorous than I thought it was going to be and you know what? I really just like the simple life. I like hanging with my sheep. I like being anonymous out here in the desert. And the Lord says, but I've got something different for you, Moses. I've got something that I want to use you. I've got something that I've created for you to walk in. Will you walk in it? So Moses comes to this place and he says, well, how is that going to happen? Now we know Moses is going to do this and for 40 years, remember his life can be split kind of three, three different 40-year periods. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, 40 years leading the nation of Israel. So we want to know how, Moses, how are you going to go from this place where after two days he burns out to then going 40 years or 14,398 days longer. That's 40 years times 360, 360-day calendar, in case you want to know that math doesn't add up. It does. How's he going to do that? He has to find a strength that is greater than he is. He has to find a source that is greater than he is. He burned out after two days in his own strength. And you know what? I think that's twice as long as that I can make it in my own strength. But how does he do it? Well, it all comes back to who God has revealed himself to be right here in Exodus chapter 3. It all comes back to this burning bush, a fire that God kindles, a fire that God is able to burn without consuming the bush upon which it burns. I found this title slide, and I love it because it's like the one tree, probably Photoshop, but it's the one tree in this little desert area, and I kind of picture it being like that. But this one tree, picture it being on fire with like a raging, awesome inferno kind of fire. Except as you watch it, you see that those leaves never wilt. You see that 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 wood never chars. You see after watching it for a significant amount of time, it's not a pile of ash. And you go, what is going on here? How does that happen? How can it be burning but not be consumed? How does it work that way? It intrigues Moses to the point where he comes in and he says, what's going on? How can this be? And then he hears this great commission from the Lord. I want to send you to Moses. Or in other words, it's like God is saying, Moses, I want you to be my burning bush in Egypt. Christians, you and I, we're just, we're called to be the tree. God brings the fire. God is the one who has to do the work. It can't ever be in our strength or it's not going to manifest anything. And again, after two days max, we're going to burn out. 
But what if, what if the Lord says, I want to bring a fire. I want to so kindle a fire in you that is not needful of being sustained by physical resources. I want to do something that you don't need to keep throwing wood on in your own strength because I am of endless supply. I'm able to burn and burn and burn and burn because what I am fueled by is not consumable in its entirety. Think about it. That's what's, a fire needs something to burn, but if you're burning on an endless supply and that endless supply is not physical things, how long can it burn? Forever. That's what's happening here. The whole truth of what Moses is going to need to do to lead the nation of Israel for the next 40 years is not found in and of himself. It's in direct contrast to the way he first tried to lead the nation of Israel in his own wisdom, in his own strength, by physically killing an Egyptian. It has to be a work of God. It has to be done through the Holy Spirit. It has to be something that is God-fueled and God-supplied, or it's just not going to prosper. But we know historically it will and it does because that's who Moses is. But I want us to just take this back. This also applies to all of us. This has been the way we've been called to live our Christian lives. It's called to be a dependence upon the filling of the Holy Spirit, to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. We know this because you can read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 and 2, and you see the very beginning. These are Jesus' disciples. Jesus has been crucified. He's been resurrected. There's a period of time of about 40 days between the, cru- the resurrection and the ascension that he is showing himself often on and on to different people that he has risen from the grave. And you, you know at this point, he's already commissioned his disciples. He's already sent them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching all I've commanded. He's already done that. They've already seen and heard him teach and the miracles. They've already seen all that. But Jesus gives one more instruction. He says, before you go out, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise from on high. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, speaking about the fire from the Lord to come upon you and fuel you for the ministry, the work that I've called you to be as witnesses of me to this world. Wait, he says. And we're talking about his disciples. If anyone was ever ready to go about it in their own strength, it's those who spent the better part of three years walking with Jesus and witnessed with their own eyes all those things. Yet he doesn't say go. He says wait. Wait to go until you, after you receive the power from on high. The fire that John the Baptist was preaching of that Jesus is able to baptize you with. So when we come back to this place and we try to make an application and we say Moses is called to do something that is awesome and God is going to use it for his glory. I want you to know, Christians, whatever God has called you to do, it's just as awesome as what God called Moses to do. It's just your task, right? It's your deliverance of somebody. It's your being a part of what God wants to do to deliver somebody. It's awesome. What God has called you to do isn't less than what God called Moses to do. It's just what he's called you to do. And the same truth applies. We cannot be relying upon our own strength. If we try to burn in our own strength, we're going to burn out and we're going to be consumed. But if we burn in the Lord's strength, if we let him be the fire, we're just going to be the tree planted next to the streams of water, kind of blending some analogies here, but Psalm 1 planted next to the streams of water where the living water of the Lord is just fueling our roots and that's what is pouring out of us. That is a sustainable ministry for as long as God wants it sustained. Right? That's not something that we need to pull out of. We can, in the strength and supply of the Holy Spirit, be faithful to what he's called you to do. And I want that. I need that. I, I not only desire that, I absolutely need that. I daily want to take my sandals off in a, in a spiritual sense, get low before the Lord, and say, God, I need you. I need you to be able to go about my Egypt this day. I need you to be able just to function and be the husband that I'm called to be, to be the father that I'm called to be, to be a pastor that you've called me to be. I need you. It brings you to a place of absolute dependence. And it took 40 years for Moses to get to that place. 40 years for him to run out of his own self-sufficiency, to run out of his own self-confidence to a place where he says, you know what, I really am empty. And then God can fill him and fill him with a power that has no, no limit to the supply. Jesus is the headwaters of the living water, the power of the Holy Spirit that can flow through the life of the believer. When we put our faith in Jesus, he says it should be like torrents of living water flowing out from our innermost being, just to sustain and to flow and to work in whatever he's called us to do. So don't try to do it in your own strength. Don't try to do it because it's something you think you're good at. Understand 
the dependence that it must have. Any work of God that doesn't need God's work is really not a work of God. If God's going to do something, it has to require his, his, his power, His Holy Spirit. And the work he's doing in you, that's exactly what he wants to do. The work in your marriage, that's exactly what he wants to do. The work in whatever area of ministry you're about, that's what he wants to do. And it's a perfect time this morning to come back to the place where we remember that. Communion Sunday, coming back to the place where we say, God, I need you. I I never had anything to bring to the table. I've never been good enough. I've never been skilled enough. I've never been equipped enough. I need you, Jesus. I need your righteousness. I needed you to die on a cross to cleanse me from my sin. I needed you to rise from the grave to conquer everything that contends against me. I need you to ascend to heaven so you can send the Holy Spirit to me and empower me for the work to be a witness and faithful to what you've called me to be. And he's done all of that, Christians. So as we just remember that and kind of put ourselves in that place where we remember who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he still wants to do, he can do a beautiful work. So I want us just to, to kind of get our mindset there as we pray. There's an, an incredible song that just kind of brings us to this place where, where we want the holy fire of God to, to burn away what needs to burn away, but to not be consumable in the strength and supply that he flows. So let me pray for us. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, as we approach communion, as we approach just your, your, your spilled blood and, and your broken body as we just think about the sacrifice that you made for us, Lord God. And I just pray if there's anyone here who just doesn't know you and hasn't surrendered their life to the Lord God of all creation, hasn't just come to the place where, God, you alone are holy and we are all less than perfect. And we come to the place where we say, we need you, Jesus. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for rising from the grave. If there's anyone who hasn't put their faith in Jesus and received that, God, I pray that they would do that this morning and they would partake of your broken body and your spilled blood and the juice and the bread and just rejoice over your great name. And Father, for all of us, as we just prepare our hearts for this, as these elements are being passed out, God, I just pray that you'd empty us. Empty us of our self-sufficiency. Empty us of our our self-confidence in this attitude that says, "I, I I know what I'm doing accelerate those 40 years in a sense to bring us to the place where we are willing to take our sandals off and get low before you and say, God, I need you. I can't do anything without you. Apart from you, Jesus, I can do nothing. But with you and in you, as I abide in you, Christ, there's nothing I can't do. So God, I just pray that you would just work that in our hearts. Holy Spirit, just be sent to minister to your people as we just worship and partake of communion. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.